podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Uh, we're continuing in our Luke series, and um, tonight we're, we're continuing in kind of the story of Luke 2 toward the second half of the chapter, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about vocation and what it means to work, and what if our jobs aren't spectacular or um, uh, don't seem like they're very spiritual, what do we do about that, what do we do with that? I grew up in Malaysia, many of you knew this, I told you that, I've told you that before, um, and when I was growing up in Malaysia, one of the, the, the earliest memories of an of a impactful moment or a significant moment in my life was when we had a missionary come and talk to us, even as kids. In fact, there was this young American missionary who, um, who used to come, and she was sort of specialized in, she was kind of a children's missionary. That was her thing, was to travel to different parts of the world and to do children's camps and children's ministry stuff. And, and we were really, really uh, uh, impacted by her. And I remember one particular children's camp, and I, I can't remember how old I was for sure, maybe eight years old or so, seven or eight, and she spoke about um, David Livingston. She started telling the story of David Livingston, what he had done in Africa, and what a remarkable story that was. And then after her talk, she said, okay, children, uh, if you would sort of um, you know, take a moment and be still, and that was quite a miracle in and of itself. And then she'd say, uh, th- th- you know, there would be this guy playing the guitar and singing this beautiful song and saying, okay, is there Anything, any one of you that maybe you feel like the Lord is saying that he wants you to be a missionary or something like that. And so I remember at a very young age being very moved by that and feeling like, yes, yes, that's what I want to do. And I didn't know exactly the details of that vocation or whether it was a missionary or or whatever, but I just felt like, yes, Lord, whatever I'm doing, I want it to be for you. And and so in my mind, I, I think at seven or eight, I sort of announced to my parents that I was going to be a missionary to Africa. And uh, that this was my goal, and this is what the Lord had said. And so they said, well, that's great, and so we'll, we'll keep preparing you for that. And then I realized that there were a number of my friends that felt that way, felt like the Lord was tugging on their hearts, and it was a really uh, fantastic, very profound uh, kind of experience for all of us as friends. Uh, but as we got a little bit older, we began to wrestle with attention here, because uh, if you're familiar at all with, with some parts of Asian culture, this is difficult to make a stereotype, but in a way, with the time that I was growing up, there was a lot of emphasis on education and career and success and status. And so a lot of my friends, as we got into our teen years, really wrestled with, okay, what do I do if I feel like I'm supposed to be a missionary, but my family really wants me to go away and go to medical school or do this or do that? And so then the obvious marriage of the two um, tensions was, well, I'll be a missionary doctor, you know? So I'll be a missionary, and then I'll be a doctor, and then that'll be great. I'll serve God, but I'll also have this, and that'll be the way that I can use my vocation for the Lord. Well, that's great, except for some of my friends who were not so scientifically inclined. And so there sort of became this dilemma of how do I serve God with my life uh, if I don't feel necessarily the tug to be a missionary or the calling to be a doctor, or, or do, if I don't have a way to sort of make my job meaningful Am I one of those others? You know, are, they, are there the ones that are special and that have holy jobs and holy vocations and holy callings, and then the rest of us sort of have ordinary jobs and ordinary roles, and we're sort of on the outside looking in? 
depending on the church culture that you came from, there are many streams in the body of Christ that sort of put the emphasis on um, vocational ministry, as in working for a church, working as a missionary, or being a pastor, as that sort of being the pinnacle of serving God. Uh, I can't tell you how many different youth conferences I've been a part of, not as a teenager, well, some as a teenager, but more even as I was traveling with the Desperation Band and doing different youth events. And the, the climactic moment of the speaker's uh, presentation that night was, for those of you that are real serious with God, come down to the front if God's calling you into full-time ministry. I trust that some of you have heard that pitch before, you know. And if you're real, and, and the rest of you, you can be half-hearted, lukewarm, you might get spit out of God's mouth, but I guess you can be an accountant, you know, or whatever, you know, whatever the implication was. But it was sort of this underlying thing of if you really repented and if you really, you know, then come on down and, and serve God full time. The rest of you, part time is okay. Um, and, and there was this tension that the older we got and thought more seriously about what we were going to study and what we were going to become and, and how this was going to take shape. All of that from my childhood years, uh, sort of took an interesting um, turn when I went to a Christian university where everybody had these outrageously big dreams. And it just seemed like, and I'm not faulting the university or anything like that, but maybe this is common in just in Christian culture in general, that the underlying thought was the bigger the dream, the more likely it is God, right? And so the more outrageous your calling and of course, at that age, if you, some of you, you've got to scroll back a little bit through the files and remember what it was like to be 19 or 20, you know, and to have your life in front of you. All, all, the, the dominant question was, what am I going to do with my life? You know, most of us are right in the middle of it saying, what am I doing with my life? You know? But there was a time when it was all looking ahead. You know, what am I going to do? And it was just full of so much hope and excitement and dream. And it was all about dreams, 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 right? I recently saw a theatrical presentation of the Joseph story, and it was really remarkable, except for this one little twist on the Joseph story that almost felt like they were saying, the point was, hang on to your dreams no matter what. But is that the point of the Joseph story? To hang on to your, is this a Disney thing? Hold on to your dreams, you know, whatever. It's a, is this the Christian message that we get saved in? Hold on to your dreams, and maybe your dream is this gigantic ministry or this significant thing. Is the only way to make our vocation holy to make sure that we're employed by a ministry or a church or that we're on the... Is that the... Is that, is that, and I, I know many of us are like, no, 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 of course that's not true. We don't believe that. We, we've, we've sort of gotten past that. But do we get any help from the life of Jesus when we're thinking about vocation? All of us immediately, when we think of Jesus, we think right away of the three years of his life that we're told the most about. The Gospels tell us his ministry years, and so we sort of have this maybe imagination that Jesus from the get-go was uh, abnormal, was strange, was special, was remarkable, and, 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 and because he was, he was that, and because he was aware of that, the way that his life played out was really, must have been spectacular. The passage tonight shows us some things about Jesus that truly are remarkable, but maybe leaves us with a, with a picture that's a little bit unexpected. Luke 2, verse 40 is where we'll start. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. 
Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to their custom. After the feast was over, while his, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Now, if you're wondering how this could have happened, how, how is it they could have been unaware with it, uh, of it, we have to sort of imagine a very different kind of travel environment than our travel environment. And our travel environment is, okay, there's all of us in our car or in our minivan or at the airport, and it's, it's a bit more difficult to lose a 12-year-old boy. Um, but, but imagine an entourage of people, sort of this whole traveling bunch, family, extended family, and they're walking or riding or journeying, and they're making the journey to Jerusalem, and they're on their way back, and Joseph is, who knows, maybe he's riding on something, maybe he's carrying something, and he's thinking, oh, I'm sure Jesus is with Mary, and Mary's thinking, I hope Jesus has, I hope Joseph has, Jesus, you know, and this is like a parent's worst nightmare times a thousand, because they've lost the Messiah. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. So this tells you there's a huge traveling party with them. Hey, did you, did you check what's... I, I don't know. Is he, is he, I haven't seen him, you know. And they're going back and forth. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, most of my life, I thought of that phrase, asking them questions as in Jesus sitting down with the rabbis saying, where do babies come from, you know? But this is not the, the sort of thing. Uh, in fact, what we know of Jewish education for little Jewish boys, shortly after the time of Christ, within a couple hundred years after the time of Christ, we know a little bit about the, the training and, and how, uh, I think up to age six or so, they're, 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 they, they begin memorizing the first five books of the Bible. They start memorizing the Torah. And then this next phase of learning that kind of kicks in is all about the questions that you ask. Now, that's a different kind of educational system than what we have or what we're used to or whatever, but we're used to a teacher asking questions and the students responding with answers. Well, that's great at a certain level, but at some point when you're encouraging interaction with the content and the material, a teacher, a good teacher knows that you really find out a lot about your students and how much they know by the questions that they ask. And, and specifically, it's very likely that there was this sort of teaching method that went maybe something like this. Hey, um, you would answer a question with another question. You kind of show your, your, your deeper understanding of the subject. So maybe the teacher or the rabbi would say, hey, um, why did Moses, why was, Moses uh, why was Abraham willing to sacrifice his son? And the student would say, how could a loving father not trust the loving heavenly father? Why would a loving heavenly father ask this of his servant? How could a God be unfaithful to his promise would be the... Do you see what I'm saying? And the back and forth of question against question against question kind of shows them unraveling kind of the deeper um, textures to the story. Does that make sense? So when it says Jesus is here asking them questions, and the very next verse says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers or his responses. This is kind of maybe what's behind that. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished and very upset. No. His mother said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I, your father and I, have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? Here's Jesus. He's still in question-answering question mode, you know. <laughs> Mom, you won't ask me a question? I'll ask you a question back. Where were you? Why did you do this to us? Why were you searching for me? You know, <laughs> snap out of it. 
And then he, with another question, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. They didn't know where that trail was going. And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. This passage in Luke from verse 40 to verse 52 uh, uses a device, a storytelling device or a poetic device common uh, in Hebrew poetry called the inclusio. In fact, the, our Old Testament reading tonight, Psalm 8, is a poem with an inclusio. And that, all that is is that the first line and the last line match. And it's meant to sort of form a little frame or, if you will, a little bracket or parentheses kind of around, nice little bookends around a particular piece. So Psalm 8 was, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name. And all that. Then it says all this stuff and then it ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how, right? Luke's storytelling in this particular vignette, and that's sort of what we're meant to take it as because of the way he tells it. Uh, it uses exactly that thing. Verse 40, the child grew in wisdom and stature. And then he tells us, how we see the child growing in wisdom and stature. And then he says it again, and the child grew in wisdom and stature. As if, if you missed it, this whole passage is about Jesus' growing up. And this is all Luke is going to tell us. This is the only glimpse we get from baby until 30, from, ba- from his birth until his ministry begins. This is the only glimpse we get. And I want to make just a few observations about it and then, and then talk a little bit more about what this might mean for us today. What we notice about young Jesus, I think it's difficult to miss that at the heart of this story, at the heart of this little glimpse, is this moment, the center of the story, almost exactly, by the way, if you were to count phrase by phrase or verse by verse, you'd find the heart of the story is this point of Jesus sitting with his teachers and amazing them. And so we'd say his knowledge of the Scriptures. His knowledge of the scriptures, but not in a rote sense, but how Jesus came to understand maybe the narrative of it. And if you're a teacher, the moment that your child, your, your student begins to not just know facts, but is able to sort of connect them and see the story and kind of zoom at your, that's the moment where you're saying, yes, you've got it. And there's something that Jesus must have shown that was bigger than facts, but sort of this understanding here is knowledge of the scripture. But the second thing that we can't help but notice is how Mary says to him in verse 48, your father and I, didn't you know your father and I were looking for you? And he says, didn't you know I was in my father's house? Coincidental, maybe. Or is this an, a moment of awareness, the beginning of Jesus' own consciousness of his mission, of his vocation, of who his father is. Remember, Luke's telling us Jesus grew in wisdom, which means he wasn't born with this sort of consciousness and awareness of it. He didn't come out of the womb and say, I must go to the cross. His first word was probably not Calvary. Okay, so this is what, I'm, what I'm saying is here's a Jesus becoming aware not only of the narrative of Scripture, but he's becoming aware of who his father is, of his identity of the narrative of his identity, his awareness of who his father is. But here is where things take an unexpected turn. Because if this were a hero tale, or if this were just sort of an ordinary story of a legendary person, you might expect that this would be the moment where the storyteller would say, and from that moment on, 
everything was different, right? After all, he just basically showed that he had an awareness of who his father really is. Look, look, my father, I'm in my father's house. This is not really my mission. It's not really with you guys. And yet, this is how the story continues. Verse 51. And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Remarkable. What was Nazareth? Remember the old saying, Jesus quotes it, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, if you had just discovered a fresh reading of Scripture that amazed your teachers, if you had come to the moment of awareness of who your father really is and what that means for you, would you really go back to Nazareth? Could you really return to that place where people even say, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, this is maybe, and this is, I know, anachronistic here, but, but maybe if we could imagine ourselves in this story, might it be a little bit like saying, okay, I've figured out what my calling is, I've figured out what my purpose is, I know who my God is, I understand what I'm supposed to do with my life, and now you're telling me I've got to go back to Kansas? I said, all right, but I need to go to the city. I need to go to the big city. This is, I'm ready for big time. I've got a fresh reading of Scripture. I have a fresh understanding of who my Father is. It's time. But Jesus was obedient to them and returned to Nazareth. What a bummer. And we've got to wait 18 years before something dramatic happens. His knowledge of the Scriptures, his awareness of who his Father is, and his obedience to an ordinary life. In the early centuries, we begin to see surface what's called the apocryphal gospels, or, or maybe a simpler way to say, fake gospels. Gospels that pretended to tell the story of Jesus as a boy, but weren't really true. And one of these stories tell, tell us of a boy Jesus who's playing with his friends and they're making clay birds, and boy Jesus breeds on him and turns him into real birds. It's, that's the stuff of myth and legend. The real story of Jesus leaves us with him returning to Nazareth and then not hearing from him again until about 18 years later. That is amazing. Because we want the apocryphal stories. We want the legendary. We want the fake stories. I want the mythology stories. I want the, I want the light. Isn't it true that once I get saved and once I figure out my mission and once I've heard from God and I've learned how to hear his voice, isn't it true now that I can go into the world and do this and do this? Am I not ready? Shouldn't I? Can't I? Nazareth? Are you sure? Nazareth? No, I, I don't know about Nazareth. I'm thinking Jerusalem. How about Rome? I mean, the angels, remember we talked about last week, the angels had this whole like anti-Caesar theme in their songs. Shouldn't I be, when does it start? Is it now? Or is it Nazareth? Jesus was obedient to an ordinary life. But I think there's something in here that makes us have to rethink, forces us to rethink a few things. We maybe need to begin by rethinking our narrative of Scripture. What kind of a narrative of Scripture would Jesus have had that made him okay with going back to Nazareth? What kind of understanding of God's plan must Jesus have had to say, I know who my Father is, and I told you I must be about His business, 
but I'll go back with my earthly dad and be about his business for 18 years. What kind of narrative of Scripture would Jesus have had that would have, made, that would have allowed for that? A few days ago I heard a story that um, really kind of bothered me when I heard it and I bit, bit my tongue and didn't say anything, but um, a, a, a certain person who, who, who leads a, a large youth, national sort of youth ministry and arenas and things like that um, was challenging or confronting another youth ministry that does camps, and part of their camp work is uh, cleaning up and restoring and, and uh, um, fixing up other youth camps and facilities. And, and this particular prominent leader was trying to rebuke this other person and said, okay, but are you getting people saved or are you just making earth a prettier place to go to hell from? I believe in heaven. I believe in hell. I believe in sin. I believe in forgiveness. But I don't believe the narrative of the scripture is about damning this world to hell. I believe the narrative is about a creator restoring if your lens, if your narrative of Scripture is we're all rotten and there's a bad, mean dad up in the sky somewhere who's ready to throw bolts down and if only we could escape his wrath. And oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, oh, okay, I get forgiven. Okay, well, let's just get out of this burning place and who cares? You know, remember the old if your house was on fire metaphor, right? If your house was on fire, wouldn't you grab everyone else around you and get out of here? If that's your narrative of Scripture, what vocation would be worthy except being a missionary? If that's your narrative of Scripture, what use of time is a good use of time except preaching on the street corners? If that's how the story of your God unfolds, how can you make sense of being a mother or a father or an obedient son who returns to Nazareth? I suggest to you that Jesus' understanding of scripture is very different than our sort of modern American one where it's all about escaping hell and getting to some other place and who knows about anyone else but we got to be aggressive and and in your face and obnoxious and because the narrative of the Bible opens with this in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth It tells us how sin came into this world, but it tells us about how God in Genesis 9, when he had his moment to destroy it all and start over, refused. What does he do instead? He keeps original animals. He keeps original humans. Gives them instructions to build this big boat so they can survive it. Why? Because faithfulness to original creation is God's heartbeat. That in the center of the narrative of the Bible is not an angry God, but a faithful God. A God whose faithfulness to redeem and rescue and restore changes everything. Would a faithful God scrap his creation and start over? He hasn't yet. And the Jews, the more we learn about Judaism in the first century, the more we see that when they said new heaven and new earth, they were seeing God restoring and remaking this one. The more we learn about their impressions, that was their picture. Could it be that this actually fits with the entire narrative of the Bible? That our reading of Scripture is not about escapism or evacuation and getting as many out as we can, but all of a sudden our narrative becomes about reclaiming ground that is already his 
We said last week, like the words of that old hymn, this is my Father's world. You believe that or do you not? Because if it is our Father's world, then everything about the way we live is different. So if we rethink the narrative of Scripture, maybe we need to remember who our Father is. The, the, the story of God, our Father, the maker of heaven and earth, is the story of a creator God and a covenant God. In fact, if you were to trace the, all through the whole Bible, you could see that theme, the creator God who's also a covenant God who's always, always faithful. In fact, when his creation gets infected by evil, what is his, what is his plan? Genesis 3 is sin. Genesis 4 is murder of brothers. Genesis 11 is society fracturing. It's evil running amok. And then Genesis 12 is a covenant God making covenant with a family saying, all right, I'm going to deal with evil in my world and I'm going to deal with it through you. What was cursed will now be blessed through you, Abraham. Through you, I will bless all families. And who fulfills that? Jesus. The seed of Abraham. We talked about this a few weeks ago in the song of Zechariah, the song of Mary. Here's Jesus fulfilling this. Reimagine, remember who our Father is. Can you see the story of the Creator God and the covenant God at work in His world? Can you see that the cross was about bringing heaven and earth back together again? First, in all of us who believe. But ultimately, in the end, that's what Ephesians 1.10 says. All things in heaven and on earth will be brought together in Christ. The answer is not a God who abandons His creation and forgets covenant, but a God who's so faithful that He finds a way to rescue and redeem His creation. Is that your picture of Scripture? Is that your picture of the Father? Because if your picture of the Father is not of the Creator God and the Covenant God, then your picture of the Father maybe is an angry dad who's just looking to dish out as much judgment as he can, and if you can escape it, then help others to escape. Look, there there is such a thing as judgment. There is such a thing as punishment. All that that that, that's I'm not denying any of that. I'm just saying that this God's plan is rescue, is restoration is reclaiming. And Jesus' incarnation is a gigantic clue into that. Because what Jesus does with His life is reclaim the image of God. Can we reclaim, we need to reclaim our original vocation. What do I mean by that? What was the first call to Adam and Eve? What did, out of the word, mouth of God, what did He say to the first humans or about them? Does He say... Let him sing harps and worship me. He says, let us make man in our image and let them reign. Now, reign has a bad image for us, right? Sort of think of dictators and tyrants. But it sounds like God's original vocation for you, your original vocation by God's design, is to reflect His image and reflect His rule on the earth. To reflect His image and to reflect His rule. Now, why would any of that matter? Because of this. It means that wherever you are, 
as a child of God, as a member of Christ's body, wherever you are, whatever your job may be, can you in that space reflect God's image into His world? If you are, then you are reclaiming your original vocation. Can you in that way reflect back God's wise, loving rule into your world? What does that look like? Well, it's very simple. If you're the boss of a company, then you ask yourself, how would this company look like if God were in charge? Would we think about His earth? Probably. Would we think about resources? You bet. Would we think about if we're depersonalizing or dehumanizing people? Oh, yes, we would think about that. How can I rule as if God was ruling in this space? If you're a mother at home with your children, you can say, how can I love and bring order into this home? Oh, against all the efforts of toddlers. How can I bring a loving and wise order into this home in some small way? When you do that, you're reclaiming your vocation. If you're... And you can go on and go on and go on. If you're an artist, a songwriter, a painter, a musician, a writer... Can you write? Can you create? Can you make videos? Can you do all of those things in a way that reflects God's image back into His world? If the answer is yes, then you're reclaiming your vocation. And I want you to know that that is the lens that we use. If if Jesus can understand who His Father is and what the Scriptures are about and yet return to Nazareth for 18 years, Can't we? A huge message of the incarnation to us is that there's no such thing as ordinary anymore. That when you are in Christ, everything you create, everything you do, you can do as unto the Lord. You can do in the Lord. Some jobs, granted, maybe if you're a drug dealer or whatever, that that probably can't be. But there's most of our roles and our vocations can be reclaimed and rescued and done in a way that reflects God's image back into His world. A few nights ago, some of our friends were at dinner, and we were talking about uh, just life, and we were celebrating someone's birthday, and this uh, woman was saying, and I'd really love to at some point maybe get into uh, interior decorating, and and she was almost apologetic. But it just seems so frivolous. And I don't want to encourage consumerism and all that. And that's true. That's a fair concern, okay? And certainly, can, every, can any vocation be corrupted into its worst form? Yeah. Can you be a banker and be a real bear about it? And be mean to people and just get people? Yeah, yeah. Can you be a farmer that abuses the land? Or can you be a farmer like my father-in-law who loves the land and loves the dirt and cold? Yeah. Are there different ways of doing our vocation? You bet. And so we're talking about the downsides of this desire of hers to make homes and make living spaces beautiful. And then we started talking about the beauty of such a vocation. What could be more beautiful than to make a living space shine with God's glory? What could be more beautiful than to say, I think we do these colors and and what if we take some furniture someone else threw away and restored it and reclaimed it and remade it? What if we do this on a shoestring budget? What if we, Right? What are those ways that we do this? Because here's the thing. The Bible talks about heaven and earth passing away, and it talks about new heaven and new earth. 
And I'm not 100% sure of how those things work together. But I do know that Jesus' body that died was raised again as a different body, as a new glorified body. But it wasn't a different body. It was that body reconstituted, right? It wasn't like they found bones or a corpse in the grave and then, oh, here's Jesus in a different body. Whoa! No, they found an empty tomb. That mortal body came through death and was changed. Could that be what happens to this world? That it comes through a passing away and then is made new? Maybe. But either way, if we believe that this is our Father's world, and if our Father, the Creator God, is also the God who's faithful to covenant, and that if you believe that your original vocation was to reflect God's image back into God's world, then I think that every place you go, you're reclaiming as God's. Every time you do a job well, you're reclaiming a space as God's. Every time you build something to the best of your ability, you're reclaiming a space of it. Brendan here is a carpenter and a contractor. When you were building, when you imagine that stuff. What if every ordinary vocation becomes meaningful not because, is it blatantly rescuing people from hell? Look, that's important. And I love and appreciate what our missionaries do. There's no way to downplay that. And we are all ought to support missionaries and pray for them. And all the way. I've got dear friends who are living overseas. We've got to do that. But is that the only grid we have for a life being meaningful? No. Or is there something holy about doing an ordinary job in such a way that God's image is reflected back into his world? I think so. I think that's what returning to Nazareth was all about. To say, I know now what the scriptures are about, and I know who my father is, but I will be obedient to this father. Maybe some of you have to say, look, I have this desire, this passion, this burning in my heart, and I really want to be doing that, but I will be obedient to this boss right now. Oh, but I just really wish that I could be doing this, or I could do, but I will return to Nazareth. We're just coming off of Christmas Day, and this is the second day of Christmas, but most of our culture does not recognize Christmas as continuing because the shopping's done. Christmas must be over. And so many of us will return to work tomorrow, and we have the potential to feel the letdown of such a glorious holiday. And just last, or just a few nights ago, we were in a room together with candles and singing carols and crying and aware of Jesus coming to earth and now here we are in traffic on I-25 dealing with that guy again or the screaming kids again or that one co-worker again and yet it's because Christmas happened that our ordinary jobs can become holy as we let them be reclaimed, recovered, and find a way to reflect into it God's image. Can we do it? Can we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit? Can we reclaim the holiness of an ordinary vocation? May the Holy Spirit overshadow you like He overshadowed Mary. May the Holy Spirit fill your life as He filled Christ. 
May the Holy Spirit make everything that you engage a thing that reflects into this world God's love, God's hope, God's joy. May all of us together and everywhere that we go this week in the city, all around the world, may all of us wherever we go reclaim this world as our Father's world and reflect His wise and loving rule back into it. Let's pray. God, we don't want to make an idol out of the spectacular or imagine that your time on earth was all about the dramatic. Thank you for this gift of this story in Luke that tells us how you returned to Nazareth and obeyed. And may the Spirit of Christ empower us to obey in the stations of life we find ourselves as mothers and fathers and friends and sisters and brothers and co-workers as bosses, as employees empower us to return to our Nazareth return to our places show us the ways to reclaim it to reflect your image back into your world in Jesus name everybody said Amen